You are listening to a sermon from the Way of Jesus series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this series, we are exploring the way of life that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Join us Sundays in Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. or online at www.doxa-church.com. Good morning. This is from Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are starting a new series uh, this morning that we're calling The Way of Jesus, and it's actually kind of a mini-series within our larger series that we're doing for the whole year, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So from January to December, we're doing the Sermon on the Mount, looking at every uh, piece of it. We've broken it down into four little mini-series. So we looked at the Beatitudes in our first series. We just wrapped that up eight weeks. Now, this week, we are launching the second part of that, uh, which again, we're calling The Way of Jesus. And I, uh, I we chose this specifically uh, because we thought it would be uh, appropriate for this kind of this cultural moment that we're in. Uh, it seems as if, and, and maybe I'm just sensitive to it because I'm a Christian, and so I hear things in the media and in culture and news and stuff, and because I'm a Christian, I hear it in certain ways. It's entirely possible. But it seems like uh, Christians, in particular, are getting killed in the media right now, um, and, and honestly, not without cause, right? And, and what I hear often is that Christians are these, uh, you know, we, we talk all the time about ethics and about morals and about what we should do and what, who we should be, and yet there's a disconnect, um, and some of that disconnect is playing out 
politically. Some of that disconnect is playing out culturally. Some of the disconnect is playing out in our workplaces in a million different ways. Um, but what I'm hearing, and it's, and it's not a new, uh, new, new kind of new idea that there's hypocrisy in the church, but it seems like it's been heightened uh, to the point where we're being accused of kind of willfully disconnecting our faith and our actions. And so um, a, a series like this where Jesus himself is going to kind of unpack uh, his way of being in the world or his way of living in the world uh, is specifically timely for this moment, okay? So over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some pretty weighty issues uh, throughout chapter five and into chapter six, uh, like anger and lust and divorce and the oaths we take or the words we say, uh, retaliation, loving our enemies, giving to the needy, all of these kinds of things. And we're going to see them from Jesus's perspective. And he's essentially going to go, this is, this is the way that I have designed you to be, to, to live in the world. And so um, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're going to be with us over these next couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to be kind of mentally and spiritually prepared to be confronted um, with the difference between what we say we believe and what Jesus actually lays out is the, the kind of the way we're supposed to be living out what we live. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, first of all, super thankful you'd come and be here with us. Uh, it's actually like pretty brave of you to enter into this kind of space and I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, but I would, I would ask that if you would, if you would plan to be here with us for the next couple of weeks, and I think it's going to be great, um, it, it, it's just to at least hear what Jesus has asked his people to be. Okay, and, and even hear it, uh, maybe you came here with a Christian friend and this Christian friend now is going, this was a huge mistake, okay? Um, because what, what I want you to do is to see your friend and all of the Christians in your life in view of what Jesus asks them to be and then when you see them not being what Jesus asked them to be, very gently remind them of what Jesus has asked them to be right? This is me making all the Christians in the room never bring a non-Christian to church, okay? This is what's happening right now. So that's my ask for, these, for this next couple of weeks, for this series, that we would engage Jesus's vision for our way of life, okay? The way of Jesus for the next eight weeks. All right. This passage in particular Salt and light is kind of a transition passage in the sermon. So Jesus in the Beatitudes gave us a vision for human flourishing, right? So the series we called it Flourishing, uh, the Beatitudes are essentially Jesus describing the kind of person or the kind of life that would result in your greatest human flourishing. So he talks about peacemaking, he talks about meekness, he talks about being poor in spirit, he talks about all kinds of things, and says, listen, if you will be this kind of person, then you will flourish as a human being, okay? The transition he's making in this passage is from, hey, this is about you and your flourishing, to now, this is how your flourishing affects the whole world around you. Okay, so we'll see how, how our behavior affects others in relationship, like uh, anger and lust and retaliation. We'll see how it affects covenant. We'll see how it affects all kinds of things in our world. But that's the move from this is your greatest human flourishing to now this is how your decisions are affecting the people and the world around you. Okay, this passage in particular is challenging because it's so familiar. <laughs> 
right? So the idea of you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. If you are a Christian and you have grown up in church at all, you've heard this passage taught probably a hundred times. Even if you're not a Christian, you are familiar with these phrases. They've been kind of co-opted by culture and they've become kind of idiomatic uh, of, you know, in, in our way of life. The challenge in that is, I think preachers come to a passage like this and go, okay, they know, what, they know where this is going. They've heard this before. So now I got to get real tricky and really complicated. And so they ask questions like, okay, what is salt really? You know, and what, what is it? So salt was a preservative. So, uh, so now Christians, you're supposed to go preserve something. And then that can go really sideways where we, go, we need to preserve our culture. And that's not worth it. Um, and, uh, and so we go, well, you know, uh, a salt brings out the flavor in food. And so you should add flavor to, what does that even mean? I don't know. Or it's a spice. So Christians should be spicy or, you know, it just, pastors go, it just goes bad. We reach for things that aren't there. This is actually a very, very simple passage where Jesus is essentially just summarizing and concluding all of the Beatitudes. And he does so this way. He lays out this vision of human flourishing, the last of which promises persecution, right? So much of the flourishing is, you know, the promises related to kingdom of God. It's related to inheriting the earth. It's relating to, you know, receiving, uh, you know, those who mourn will be comforted, those kinds of things. And then the last one says, and if you are righteous, if you actually live this out, probably persecution is going to come your way, which possibly causes everyone in the crowd to go, oh, this is good, Jesus. I like this, Jesus. I can do this. I can flourish. I want the earth. Oh, it's persecution? Nah. And they go, ah, I don't think maybe I'll walk in this. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. You need to do this. And here's why. Verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, I, I want you to see something here. Uh, there's something kind of interesting happening in the Greek that, you know, I don't often do that to you, but, you know, I, I don't want you to miss it. And Greek scholars, you know, Greek scholars, uh, we see this stuff, and uh, I just don't want the rest of y'all to miss this. Jesus is actually using, like, a play on words here. If, if this was translated literally, it would say, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become foolish... How can it stop being foolish, basically? How can it be restored? And he's using like an idiom or a a play on words there that's basically saying, um, if the salt ceases to be salt, if it is pursuing a purpose that has nothing to do with its saltness, Okay, so it says lose its taste. Some of your translations may say if the salt has stopped being salty, if it loses its saltiness. But perhaps the best way to say it would be if the salt loses its saltness. The very thing that makes it salt, if that goes away, then kind of what good is it, right? He says, he answers that question. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, the salt does a lot of different things. It had a lot of different utilities uh, in the ancient world. It still does today. My kids love it on their ketchup. I don't know. And, and, and yet, like, there, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things that it does. But the big idea here is salt is valuable. And it brings real value. It has a real effect on the things that, to it, like, that it touches. Okay? Now, in order for us to understand what Jesus is saying here, I, we've got to see a couple things. First is, who's the you in this passage? 
He says, you are the salt of the earth. Who's the you? The answer is, every human being ever created is the you. The you in this passage is not Christians. Jesus is not saying Christians are the salt of the earth. That's not what he's saying. Because the crowd to which he is speaking are not all Christians. We see that by the end, at the end of chapter seven, he says it's a, it's a huge crowd, a mixed crowd. A lot of people have come to listen. This is early in Jesus' ministry. The people that he's talking to are not all Christians. The you that Jesus is talking to is humans. All human beings are the salt of the earth. This, so that's the first word. The second word is just as important. He says, you are the salt of the earth, not you could be the salt of the earth, not you should be the salt of the earth, not you ought to be. If you really were doing it right, you'd be the salt of the earth. He's saying you human beings are the salt of the earth. Whether you act like it or not, you are the thing that is supposed to be valuable, that's supposed to add value to the world around it. Now, all of this for those of you who are new to the Christian faith, perhaps, is rooted in an understanding of who we are and what's our purpose, which for us, for Christians, finds its root back in Genesis chapter one. We often go back to Genesis chapter one because so much of our theology is founded on what happened in those first couple of chapters in Genesis. And what do we see? That God created this whole world and he called it very good that this was just what he intended. He desired to create a world and then he plopped down humans in the middle of that world and he gave them in his first command, God's first command to humanity was to care for, to cultivate, to protect, to create, to be in charge of God's perfect creation. Okay, so God made the world, made it perfect. Then he gave it to humans to care for and cultivate and create, to make it better, to connect all the dots. He gave us all the raw materials to put them together, to make cities, to make culture, to make art, to make a world, to procreate, to just make more of what God made. That, I mean, that's a huge responsibility. And he gave it to humans and said the end for which you were created humans was to enter into this perfect world and cultivate it and make it better. So now we fast forward to Jesus in Matthew 5. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, this is a reiteration of what God said in the garden in Genesis 1. You are the thing for which this creation was made. You are the salt of the earth. All humans, whether you are a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Muslim, whatever you are, this is why you were made. To care for to cultivate, to create, to add real value to the world around you. That's who you are and it's what you were made to be. Therefore, this makes more sense of what Jesus is saying. But if salt has lost its taste or ceased to be salt, how shall its saltiness be restored? This is kind of a rhetorical question. It cannot, right? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's what Jesus is saying. All of you whom I made, I made you for a purpose. I, I made you for, a, a, you have an end for which you were created. 
to be in this world, to make it better, to add real value, to cultivate it, to make new things, to take old things and make them better, to create. And so we see in the Bible, this movement from Genesis 1, this first mandate, all the way to Revelation 22, which is kind of the culmination of everything, where God has set to rights what he intended in Genesis 1. In the middle of that, he gives humans the responsibility to care for, cultivate, and create. Does that make sense? Okay, well, I'm going for it anyway, even if it doesn't. Jesus said humans are like salt. They bring real value to the world if, if they live like flourishing human beings. So he gives us a picture of human flourishing. And then he says, if you will do this, you can be like salt. You can be the very thing you were created to be. But if you don't live out the Beatitudes and live into this kind of vision for human flourishing, you add no real value to the world around you. The expectation is that humans, and I'll say more specifically now, Christians or those who follow the way of Jesus would add real value to the world. Not escape from the world nor become like the world, but the expectation is that we can actually, I know this phrase sounds trite, but we can actually make the world a better place. God has given us the recipe for true human flourishing and we can demonstrate that to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our classmates. And that's the effect that it could have. And especially, I would say, in our kind of cultural moment. For much of American history, you could have gone out into the world and acted Christianly and largely gone unnoticed because most of the culture and institutions around you propped up a basically Judeo-Christian worldview, regardless of whether they're actually Christian or actually uh, had, you know, kind of trusted Christ in faith. They're, they kind of lived, the world around us in America, especially in the West, lived basically Christianly at least outwardly. This is clearly no longer the case. And so this kind of new cultural moment brings with it potential for great hardship, but also potential for great good. I mean, just imagine if we lived out, actually lived out these beatitudes in this cultural moment. What would it look like to be poor in spirit, to be genuinely humble, in the era of Instagram and Snapchat? What impact would it have to openly and empathetically mourn the brokenness in our world instead of celebrating it or simply condemning it from afar? What would meek leadership look like? Leadership that is simultaneously strong and wise in a climate of pompous blowhards flaunting their fragile power. If you hungered and thirsted for righteousness every day like the rest of the world hungers and thirsts for power and popularity, would that make you a better neighbor, coworker, or friend? If you showed mercy to your coworkers and employees, not permissiveness, but principled mercy, would they respond to you differently? If the focus of your faith was purity of heart as opposed to purity of reputation, would that change you? 
were to change your relationships, your faith, if you committed to pursuing peace in your workplace every day and were willing to enter in sacrificially to bring it about instead of scrambling to cover your backside and avoid blame, would your coworkers trust you more? If you did all of this and were persecuted for it, but instead of fighting back, backing down, or dodging the truth, actually stood in the gap for your faith, humbly but boldly, how would your persecutors respond? The way of Jesus brings actual value to the world around us. That's the expectation because it's in line with God's original intention for the world. See, God's not trying to turn us into some new thing when he saves us. God had a desire for us, an intention for us in our creation. Sin broke that and we kind of became a second thing. And God's redemptive work is not to create this third new thing, but to return us back to God's original design and intention so that we would live in light of that intention, that we would live in the world in the way of Jesus. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that's not an identity we can get away from. That's true whether we walk in it or not. It's only a question of, are we actually walking out that saltness? Are we actually being and doing the thing for which we were created or have we rejected our very identity and gone our own way? This is the second thing. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. I have a light. You are a light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Am I going to hide it under a bushel? No. If you don't know what we're talking about, it means you didn't grow up in church. Otherwise, you would have found that hilarious. That's pretty much what you missed, though, that and flannel graphs. Again, remember the language. He says, you, humans, are the light of the world. What's that mean? Well, again, in Genesis chapter one, God did this special thing in creation. He makes all the things and then he makes us and he makes humans in this unique way in that he gives us his image. Says he made us in his image so that in our innate, most fundamental selves, we bear the image of God. And we were put on this earth to bear witness to who God is and what God's desire for the planet is. That's in us. And we can work as hard as we can to run away from that, to obscure that, to pretend like it doesn't exist, but our best selves will always bear the image of God. We can't get away from that. And so he says to you, to the entire crowd, this mixed crowd, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You were made with a purpose to bring actual value to this world. And you are the light of the world. Meaning there's nothing you can do. You are reflective even if you're not trying, you are reflective. Light reveals what is true around it. And God says, when you are your best self, when you are experiencing this vision of true human flourishing, you reveal the truth about God and the truth about God's world. This is no one in their right mind 
would take a light and hide it. They wouldn't do it. That's not what it's made for. That's not the value that it brings to the world. A light is meant to reveal. A light is meant to illuminate. No one in their right mind would light a candle and then put a bull or a bushel, whatever that is, over it. That doesn't make sense. That's undoing the very thing for which the light was created. Jesus says the same thing. That makes no sense. You are, you are salt. Be salt. You are light. Be light. Bear witness to the truth of who God is and who he's made you to be and what his intention for the world is. Jesus summarizes all this and kind of concludes by saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's three things in there that I want us to see in Jesus' conclusion. First, he says, let your light shine before others, right? So um, we are meant to be in proximity to others, that we are meant to live the way of Jesus before others. One theologian named Mike Goheen calls it uh, that, that humans are supposed to be a display people, the kinds of people that God would put on his mantle so that every guest in God's house would go, that's the idea, that's the vision. I'm going to put my best version of my intention, best version of my creation on the mantle so you can all see what it's meant to be like. That's us. That's God's intention with us. That we would be a display of God, of God's creation, and God's intention for our relationship to the rest of creation. So we have to bear witness among others, before others, so that it requires of us proximity. I said this before, but um, this vision of salt and light requires that we don't become like the world and therefore have no light, nor retreat from the world, but to be in the midst of it, to shine our light before others. So that's the first, proximity. The second is purity. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may See your good works. Now, good works get a bad rap in our circles, right? And so if, if I can say our circle, our kind of Protestant evangelical, right? We believe that our relationship to God is founded on grace and faith, that we are saved by grace through faith. And so this idea of good works gets very problematic because we go, well, but if we, if we think too much and talk too much about good works, then you know, we'll forget that we're saved by grace through faith and we'll be tempted towards legalism and works righteousness. And, and I would just say this. I don't think that's our problem. I don't think our main problem is that we're too concerned about good works. So how about we make a deal? You guys focus on living the way of Jesus in public, and I'll let you know when you get too far away from grace and faith. Deal? This is not our problem. In fact, even in the chapter... That, that most of our theology of being saved by grace through faith is founded. Ephesians chapter two, Paul takes nine verses, verses one through nine, to unpack the idea that we are saved not by our works, lest anyone should boast, but we are saved by the grace of God through faith, believing that our only hope is in God. And then he summarizes it in verse 10 by saying, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for 
good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guess this is the redemptive purpose that God made us a certain way for a certain thing to live the way he made us to live, to care for, cultivate, and create, to love one another, to love God. This was his entire intention. Sin breaks that all up. Jesus comes to redeem us back to him so that we could just do what he initially intended for us to do. That's the whole idea. So when Jesus says, be a light, he then tells us what our light is. It's our life. It's our good works. Our good works, the way of life that we live is the light to the world. That is what's meant to reflect the goodness of God, the intention of man, and the relationship to creation. It's the way we live. Now, third, he says, so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. D.L. Moody, great preacher and pastor, says it this way. He says, we are told to let our light shine. And if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. Now, does this mean we never talk about our faith? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, how are they ever going to give glory to your Father in heaven if they just see your good works and then you never say why? But if our talking precedes our living, then we're just converting people to a set of ideas and that's not the idea. Jesus says, your light is your life. That's what is shining or not shining. Your life is your saltness. That is what is either bringing real value to the world or not. But that's what you were created for. That's what I made you for. And so when you do that, and as, as you know, I, I don't want to overblow this, but as kind of American Western culture and a, uh, the way of Jesus perhaps diverge, this becomes more and more and more obvious. And so when they see us following the way of Jesus, even when it's counterproductive according to the ways of this world, and they go, well, why would you do that? And then not only do they see that we follow the way of Jesus, but we, they see that when we follow the way of Jesus, we really flourish. We have genuine joy and genuine peace as we follow Jesus. They go, well, why? And you go, well, because I've got a good father who made me this way, and he actually made you this way, and it's the path of greatest flourishing, and I get joy and peace and satisfaction and love because I follow Jesus, and I'm being the way God made me to be. And it's the way God made you to be, too. There's like a real path to human flourishing. And it's the way of Jesus. If we do this, Jesus says, if we follow the way of Jesus, three things will result. One, we will become more fully human. And I, and I know how like humanistic that sounds, but I, I don't want humanism to co-opt the truth of the gospel, which is God created human beings to be human beings, that he had amazing intention in his creation, that his vision for what a human could be was, there, there's nothing more that we need. 
And that our, the redemptive work of God is to just draw us back into our humanness. That what sin does is make us less human. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin turns us away from God. And in so doing, makes us less like the humans we were created to be. When we follow the way of Jesus, we become more fully alive, more fully human. Second, when we follow the way of Jesus, we will add real value to the world around us. Real value. Not pious platitudes, not a good example, but real value. Because as we follow the way of Jesus and we flourish, guess what? The people around us flourish. That's what we're going to be talking about for this, the rest of this series is when we walk in the Beatitudes, as we walk in Jesus's way, then the relationships we have begin to flourish and the workplaces in which we work begin to flourish more and more and more and more because there is one more person walking out the way they were supposed to be, the way they were made to be. Third, in the process, we will glorify God, which, which simply means we will be that reflective light that actually tells people what God's about. Because there's this really wrong-headed way of thinking about God that that, that God has imposed kind of a, a random moral code on the world and that it's our job to simply align to this random moral code and just obey. And, and that's, that's, That's not wrong, but it's not fully right either. The problem is, it's not random. That when God tells us the way to live, he's giving us essentially the the instructions for how to live on the planet he created. He's saying, this is what I made. This is how it works. So use it the way it's supposed to work. This is how I made you. This is how I made you to work. Now, if you will just walk in my ways, you will experience the fullness of your working. That's it. So as we are able to bear witness to that, we're able to kind of separate out this idea that God just looks down on us and goes, okay, I'm going to say that that's going to be wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. They like that a lot and they do that a lot. That's wrong. Uh, And, but these things can be right because they don't, they don't seem to like them that much. That's not how it is. That God goes, okay, I'm going to make the world. I'm going to make it good. Very good. I'm going to put people in it. And if they, if they, use it the way I made it to be used, if they can love each other the way they were made to be, if they can interact with me, if they can interact with the world, if they can just do it the way I made them to do it, it's all going to go right. It's all going to go good. And then it didn't, and it continues to not, but God's redemptive work is always to pull us back into this, that initial vision, that initial intention in creation. Which means, as people see that, the first two things will happen more often. More and more people will experience the fullness of human flourishing. More and more people will add real value to the world around them. And then there's this kind of network effect that happens as we, as a community, I mean, that's the vision of the church that we in community with one another, all of us pursuing God's vision of human flourishing together has this multiplying effect that we could be in God's intention for the church to be that display people as we love and care for each other over and over and over. This is the invitation. This is the invitation into the way of Jesus. And it's the invitation the same way in, whether you are here and you are a Christian or you are not a Christian. 
It's the same thing. It, over and over, it's the same thing. And it's very simple. It's repentance and faith. It's very simple. Repentance is a very big word that means a very simple thing. That we have, for some amount of time, most of our lives probably, gone, this is the way. This is the way to joy, and this is the way to satisfaction, and this is the way to be loved, and this is, this is the way. We'll call it the way of Justin. And the way of Justin is my way, and I'm going to go this way. And repentance is simply this. It's simply saying, you know what? Actually, the way of Justin has brought me a great amount of pain, quite a bit of destruction, and it seems like it's arcing towards death. And so instead of, uh, uh, instead of pursuing the way of Justin, I'm going to say what the way of Justin is, which is arcing towards death, and I'm going to find something else, and we would invite you into the way of Jesus to say, like, this seems like I'm going to pursue in faith, believing that Jesus' way is the way to true flourishing and true love and satisfaction and joy and peace and all the things. I'm going to enter in by faith. God has, by his grace, allowed us to enter in, even though we've spent most of our time going, the way of Justin. And I just, I don't recommend the way of Justin for any of you. Um, and, and, and we are invited in by faith to the way of Jesus. And what happens, even for those of you who've been doing this for decades, is you go, yeah, 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 I'm all in on the way of Jesus. I'm all in on the way of Jesus. I believe the way of Jesus is the way to real flourishing. Oh, what's that? Oh, I think this could be a way. I think this could find, no, actually more pain and destruction. No, I'm in with Jesus. I'm going to repent and I'm going to believe I'm in with Jesus. It's all about, it's, it could be about this actually. And uh, I'm going to try this for a bit and I'm going to try and get some love out of this. And it broke my heart. Okay, way of Jesus. I'm all in on Jesus. And it's this over and over and over and over. And that's why it's the same movement for the Christian as it is for the non-Christian to say, I repent. This is not it. This is a way that leads to pain and hurt and death and destruction and, and awful, and this is. And by faith, I'm going to trust that Jesus' way is the way to life. And it's just that over and over and over until you die. That sound fun? That's it. It is a constant. God's grace is a constant invitation into the way of Jesus. It is offered to you because of the grace of God it requires you to believe and have faith that this truly is the way to life and then to walk in it. And to recognize when your eyes are off it, repent, call it what it is and get back over and over and over. And there is a never ending amount of grace for you. There's a never ending amount of times for us to do this. That's the invitation for today and throughout this series. And as long as you consider Jesus, that's the invitation. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I, don't, uh, I don't understand. I don't understand your unrelenting grace. I get fed up with my kids after one and a half moments of disobedience. And yet you have offered grace millions of times to me. And you will a million times more. Every time that I avert my gaze from you, Every time that I am distracted, that I am tempted by some other promise that says, I can give you what you need. 
and I walk down its path and I experience what it has to offer and I am inevitably disappointed. I come back to you and you are there with open arms waiting, inviting me back into your way, the way that leads to life. Lord, I pray this morning that we would repent and believe. I pray this morning that those who have walked your way, have tried to walk your way for decades, would this morning repent and believe. And I pray, Lord, this morning that someone for the very first time would repent and believe. That you would allow them to see the fruitlessness of their way. And more importantly, the great joy that awaits them, the great peace and love and satisfaction, all that you have on offer, the life that you have waiting for them with you. So yeah, Lord, I I pray that you'd let them see the, the darkness, but man, I pray that the light would shine ever brighter for all of us. Every day, every time we are tempted by the darkness, that we would see the light shine bright. That you would make us salt again. The only way salt can become salt again is by your redemptive work. Do that in us, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.